to another AIC NSW Conveyancing Conversation. The podcast series brings you the latest in case law, legislative updates and conveyancing practice from a select group of experts in the field. In the first of two episodes on practice risk management, Margaret Collier talks to Peter Moran. A partner at Colin Biggers & Paisley, Peter has over 30 years' experience in insurance, reinsurance and commercial litigation. His expertise includes the defence of claims against various classes of professionals, as well as in general liability litigation. Peter regularly conducts training sessions for regional real estate and legal practitioners on good practice and risk management. Our guest today is Peter Moran. Welcome, Peter. Thank you very much, Margaret, and thank you for inviting me to come along and talk. Risk management is a term that gets thrown across all professions and trades, but often without the person fully understanding what it actually is. So perhaps we could start with what is risk management and why is it important? Three reasons. Firstly, for the proper protection of clients, you don't want to have a situation where because of some error that you've committed, a transaction fails or a client suffers a loss. So it's important for clients. Secondly, it's important for public confidence in the sense that you're a, you're a licensed conveyancer. It's important that the public have confidence that you as a professional person will do your job properly. So it's important that you have all practitioners, and not, not just conveyancers, but medical practitioners and legal practitioners that take risk management seriously. Otherwise, you'll, you will get a drop off in public confidence. Thirdly, for the practitioner, and other practitioners in the sense that if a practitioner is doing something habitually wrong and causing a risk for the client, then it's important that that practitioner know what it is and remedy it, but also that that lessons are then learned so that other practitioners will not fall in the same trap. So in my view, those are the three most important things. There are other things. For instance, you don't want to become a person who has a multitude of claims because that will impact on premiums, your, your, your professional indemnity premiums will go up and your reputation will start to start to fail. So there's probably that, that's probably a, a less important aspect. The main important aspects, I think, are protection of the clients and public confidence. So it's not about eradicating risk, is it? Can risk be completely avoided? I don't think it can be because just take a, a, a straightforward real estate transaction as an example. There's yourself, there's the opposing conveyancer or lawyer, and there's the estate agent, and they're the three insured professionals. And because they are insured professionals, sadly, they become a target. So they are a, they are a target. So there are a lot of claims uh, uh, against all professional people that are just not grounded in fact. In other words, they're really um, claims that should never have been brought, but nevertheless, they are brought. What risk management does, though, is it lessens the risk of a claim being made against you. That's really what this primarily is is all about, lessening the chance of uh, a claim being made. And if a claim is made, then it is dealt with appropriately and efficiently, both for you and for the client. So that's, that's why uh, it's important. But no, you can't actually eliminate the risk, unfortunately. Um, I suspect that once a problem arises, many people in hindsight think along the lines of, I should or shouldn't have done so-and-so. Are there any general rules that people should follow to prevent a problem before it arises? Uh, there's, a, there's a few things. Keep good records. Confirm advice given in writing. Keep your files for a period of time. Different organisations have different um, thinking as to how long you should keep a file for. But in general terms, 
a claim against a licensed conveyancer will probably, there are some exceptions, but probably become statute barred after six years. So most people hold their files for about seven years. Advise within your expertise. That can be a problem area as well. Just because a client asks you a question uh, about about an area, don't necessarily be dragged into advising on it. If it's not your area of expertise, make a fairly clear statement to that effect. And if you're able to refer them to others who do have that expertise, by all means, do so. But that can be a dangerous area as well. So don't, don't advise outside your expertise. Be clear as to who you're giving advice to. In other words, make sure that you're giving advice to your client. Um, and in a conveyancing context, the one that springs to mind is getting phone calls from the selling agent. You're acting for a purchaser. The selling agent may well have referred the purchaser to you and may well refer other purchasers to you. So they're a source of your work, but they're not your client. And you'll often find they'll ring up and say, what's happening here? What's happening there? Why can't we do this? I want you to do that. You have to always keep your professional hat on and remember that that person on the other end of the phone is not your client. And firstly, you can't disclose things that are confidential to your client. And secondly, you can't act on instructions from a selling agent. You need to always remember that the client is 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 not the person at the end of the phone. The client, in, in the case that I mentioned, is the purchaser. Just back on the point about file retention, just to clarify the point that for conveyances, our legislation does say seven years. But I have to say our insurers have kind of put it out there that they would really like you to keep your file forever because of run-on and um, the fact that our clients have six years from the time they become aware of a problem to make a claim. Mm. So if you buy a property this year and the client holds onto it for 10 years, um, there might be a claim coming, you know, 10, 15 years down the track. Um, So our insurers are sort of kind of would you please convert your your paper file after six, seven years into an electronic file and hold that forever and keep updating the technology as it changes? Do, you, do lawyers have anything like they that? Do, they do pretty much the same thing. It's, it's easy for me to suggest that you should hold files indefinitely, but there's a cost involved in that. There's a storage cost. I understand that. Nevertheless, if it's relatively inexpensive to convert your files to an electronic version then it should be cheaper to store. But bear in mind this, though. If you are, unfortunately, the subject of a claim and you find yourself sitting in court one day being cross-examined about advice you gave, the advice that you gave will probably be advice that you gave about three to five years ago. So if you've done a lot of conveyancing work in that period of time, it's very difficult to remember what you said. That's where file notes will save you. And sometimes it can just be a scribble on a piece of paper. Obviously, the best risk management in this area is to confirm any advice that you give orally in writing, to make sure that you understand what your instructions are. If there's any uncertainty, make sure that you obtain certainty. In other words, you contact your client by phone, and then when they've clarified, you then confirm that with an email. Don't make assumptions as to what you think your client wants, and don't and this has been the subject of a number of claims against, uh, against certainly lawyers, and that is giving advice in social settings. It's dangerous. And I've fallen into that trap myself where you're in a social setting and there's a, there's a doctor there and you say, oh, doc, what about this or what about that? It is tempting to say, look, I think the answer is X. But again, you need to realise that you're in a social setting and explain to the person, I'm more than happy to answer that question or I'm more than happy to act for you or con- to consider that issue. Can you come in and see me? on Monday morning or Tuesday morning. They will often press you, and I've been pressed in social settings. 
But I think without being rude, you have to then say, what you're asking me is something that I need to give careful thought to. And I might need to see documentation. I might need to even research the answer. It's unwise of me to give you advice in this setting. It's also unwise of you to accept that advice because it may well be wrong. And thirdly, we are in this social setting and it's, I really shouldn't be giving you advice about something that's confidential when there's all these other people standing around listening. So for those three reasons, I think you've just got to put your serious face back on and say, I'm sorry, I can't talk about that here. But there are a number of claims that have been made by people who have given advice in those social settings. Or you're acting for a client, and this was a, a, a claim that I had, you're acting for a client in a particular transaction. So you're dealing with that client quite regularly for that transaction. Then in the course of, uh, um, I think in that case it was a lunch, talked about the transaction, but then said, oh, by the way, I've got this other issue. Can you tell me about this other issue? It was a, it was a tax minimisation issue. And the lawyer basically drifted into that area. Now, if you have, in fact, given advice in that social setting, the best thing you can do is, as soon as you're able to, make a note of what you said, then email or communicate with the client in some other way, and actually say, and I've seen these these letters written, or emails written, you did ask me a question when we, for instance, had lunch. I indicated to you at the time that I that the answer was not straightforward and I needed to research it. Could you please come into my office and we can discuss it further, and I recommend against you acting on my advice until we've actually clarified it. That way, you're not having the client go off and say, well, he told me this over lunch, so I'm just going to go ahead. So it would be essential then that that sort of email be sent almost immediately before they've had a chance to actually take action on the off-the-cuff advice. Absolutely. Yeah. An example outside a conveyancing context, instructions to prepare a will. Instructions come from the son. Once a will prepared for the father, the father's not well, the father's in hospital. The lawyer, in that case, gives his um, mobile phone number to the son. The son keeps ringing him. On a Saturday when the lawyer is at his son's soccer game, he gets the phone call. What's happening? What's happening? What's happening? And so, of course, you can probably guess where this story is going. The father ends up dying. The lawyer hasn't done the will in time. The son was going to inherit the majority of the estate. So the son then sues the lawyer saying, well, if you'd implemented these instructions more quickly, I wouldn't have missed out on my inheritance. Now, the risk management lesson there is if you're going to give your mobile number to a client then unless you put controls on when you receive those calls, you will receive them after hours. So you'll be at home having dinner with your family or, or you'll be out visiting or something. So, so a, lot of, a lot of practitioners, almost as a marketing thing, say, by the way, here's my mobile number. That's fine. But if you don't control when you receive those calls, you will get them at all hours. And then it becomes, and as you say, Margaret, you need to then confirm what you've said as quickly as possible in an email. But you can have four or five phone calls during the course of an evening, and you're going to struggle to remember what they're all about. That example with the lawyer and the will, I firstly would have been surprised that he could take those instructions from the son if he was interest, if he had an interest in the will. So I'll jump to the question of how important is it to be certain who your client is? Um, sometimes you'll have multiple clients. Sometimes they seem to crawl out of the woodwork. You start with one person and suddenly you find you've got three or four. How do you confirm and um, sort out your instructions with best, that? The best way to, to um, answer that question is, is by citing a couple of examples. Acting for a law firm who uh, was being sued by three uh, ladies. There were six people in total from a rural town in western New South Wales who were going to buy a commercial building in Sydney. Uh, three men and their wives. The men had dealt with the law firm extensively for years. The lawyer in question had never met any of the wives. So the instructions all come from the husbands. 
advice is then given to the husbands on the assumption that they will pass the advice on to the wives. But all six of them were acquiring this property um, as tenants in common. There were then a number of issues with the property, including um, there was an encroachment that hadn't been the subject of a survey. There was also a litigated problem with one of the tenants, which meant that the return on the investment was a lot less than what these six people were expecting. So the law firm gets sued by all six of them, but there's no evidence of and this is what they should have done, they should have said to the three men who came marching into the office, there are six purchases here. We're happy to give advice to you three, provided we firstly see the wives, because they're also our clients, and we need to get from them their written authority that we can receive instructions from you and we can give advice to you. So we're not going to act on your say-so that everything's fine. If they give us that uh, written authorization, then we can act upon it. But don't assume you can just send that authorization into us because there can be issues of identity fraud. You don't know where that document's been legitimately signed or not. So we will need to see all six of you together. And if the three wives are happy for us to deal with you three gentlemen, that's fine, but we need that authority because they are equally our clients. This is one situation where VOI is actually your friend. Um, If you've got to identify the client, if you've got to do a face-to-face identification, which our rules require, they can't fight against that. They can't prevent you contacting the, well, the wives in this case. I think that's right. What it does is you're showing to your clients that you treat identification seriously and that you treat authority seriously. And you're also showing in that example to the three wives that you treat them seriously. They've got just as much an interest as what the husbands have. But you will often get in um, conveyancing transactions a number of people who are acquiring a property and there'll be one spokesperson. And that's fine. Sometimes it works to your advantage because you can have one line of communication. You're not having five people telling you different things. But you just need to make sure that at the commencement of the retainer, you've got that documented. And then another example where there has been that authorization given, you nevertheless get a phone call from someone, from one of your other clients, saying something different to what your primary contact tells you. Well, that's where you've got to pause and say, right, we now have a problem. Either you are all authorizing Joe Bloggs to give me instructions, or you're not. In the event that you're not, then I can't act for all of you. In other words, you'll have to get independent advice. So the authorization is fine. But if any one of the clients then says, you know what, I, I don't want to go down the path that Joe Bloggs is suggesting, then at that stage, you've got to, you've got to stop and suggest to, to the others that they get independent advice because you can't have more than one master in those circumstances. No, or make it clear that they have to all give you exactly the same instructions, That's identical right. instructions. Yeah. Now, when you say, when you say to them um, on that scenario, I'm sorry, I've now got inconsistent instructions. I can no longer act. You'll have to get independent advice. That's when they might think, oh, hang on, this is going to cost us money because we've all got to go and get our own, our own lawyers or separate, con- separate conveyances are now going to have to act. Maybe we should talk amongst ourselves. And that's what, the, that's what either the lawyer or the conveyancer can say. You go outside and talk about it. If you come back and say that you are all of one voice, that's fine, we can continue. If you come back and say we are not all of one voice, then at that point we have to part company. With conveyancing, it tends to be that they have a, go and have their little sort of domestic and then come back and say, oh, okay, we've decided this, you know. <laughs> one of, usually in the re- a marriage relationship, for example, they tend to have something in the dynamics of the relationship that one person tends to win out in those situations. It's very rare that they will both dogmatically go, no, yes, this way or no, that way. But it was more that you need to have identical instructions from both clients. Mm. Yeah. Now... The other thing that earlier example you 
cited about the son trying to give instructions mm-hmm. on the will that rings a bell in my head is that with ARNEC, which is the body that looks after the body of registrar generals that sets the rules for electronic um, settlements, their VOI requirements establish that it's sufficient for the practitioner to do the VOI on the what they call the client's agent, which is usually the person who holds the power of attorney or a company director, etc. But is it sufficient? Can you just take instructions from the client agent like that? Or do you need to ensure that the principal is aware of what the client agent is doing? Okay, good question. What you need to, you need to ask yourself a preliminary question, and that is, well, who is the client? In this transaction, if you're acting, if if if, and I'll I'll use the the um the son who has power of attorney over his mother's estate. If your instructions come from the son, who is the attorney under the power of attorney, the principal under that arrangement is the mother. You owe her a duty. You may never have met her, but you owe her a duty. So the attorney can, in effect, step into her shoes in terms of producing the power of attorney. But it is always best practice. To nevertheless just say, let's just say, son says, "Here's a power of attorney. I'm acting uh, for mum. Mum's now in a nursing home. She has a piece of real estate that she wants sold because the proceeds are going to go towards getting mum into a better nursing home. She's not happy with the one she's in. She wants the money. So your instructions are: property is to be sold, and proceeds are to go to nursing home. Because you owe a duty to the mother in that circumstance, the the, the principal. It is." best risk management, in my view, to actually speak to the mother. Now, mum may well be in a nursing home and may well have given a power of attorney, but has no capacity issues whatsoever. She just, she's, just, she's just acting prudently. And so you then clarify with her and you make a file note of it, or you confirm it in writing with her. Or if you are told by either the nursing staff or the son, look, mum has very advanced dementia, she will not understand what you're doing. There is no harm then in checking the power of attorney and see who gave advice to mum when she did sign the power of attorney because she could only sign that document legitimately when she had capacity. She may well have drifted into a state of dementia, but at the point when she signed the power of attorney, she didn't. So you get on to somebody else, a lawyer who said, yes, I, I, I advised her in relation to that power. You shouldn't have to go and second guess whether or not she's got dementia or whether or not she has capacity. But I think it's important to at least go a certain way down that path to satisfying yourself that she doesn't have capacity to instruct you and that you can therefore act uh, on what you're told by the attorney. But just bear in mind, from a risk management point of view, that powers of attorney are the most abused documents in the country. Now, what if mum, who's sitting in a nursing home and is quite lucid, says, yes, that's quite right, I've told my son, John, that I want him to sell the property and I want the money to go into this particular nursing home that I I want to move into. Great, go ahead. Then what about just before settlement, John says, uh, mum now wants the money to go into my account. That's where you're into dangerous territory. And there have been a couple of cases where that has actually happened, where the money goes into the son's account and the son then dissipates the money and uses it for his own purposes. So you are then either sued by the mother or in one case, the, the lawyer in that case was sued by the protective commissioner saying, well, the money was supposed to go for the benefit of. So under a power of attorney, you can engage in transactions provided they are for the benefit of the principal, uh, not for the benefit of the son. So you can find yourself in that scenario where son suddenly says, no, no, the money's going to go into my account. So two ways you can go at that point. Just 
contact mum. If mum's lucid, she will say, no, 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 that's going to go into this nursing home. So there's a red flag. Scenario two is mum has advanced dementia, so you can't check things out with mum. You are nevertheless entitled to act as you are instructed to by the son in that circumstance. But in my view, you should be writing to him saying, this power of attorney document does not permit you to confer a benefit on yourself. You have instructed me that the money is to, is to be used for the benefit of your mother, but it's going to go into your account. I can only emphasise that the money cannot be for your benefit, it has to be for your mother's benefit. I think if you do that, then the prospect of a claim against you is minimalised, but mm. you have to have some record of having advised him of that fact. Actually, I'll just sneak in a little anecdote of my own, because I'm aware of one claim where the practitioner took instructions from the attorney and the story, and I'll emphasise the story, that they were given was that the principal was his 88-year-old grandmother, she was in a nursing home, she had dementia, and that they needed to sell the house to pay for the nursing home. So she thought, well, I can't talk to the principal because if she's 88 and in nursing home with dementia, she's not going to be able to tell me anything. So she contacted the solicitor that prepared the power of attorney and she asked all the questions. What she didn't ask was how old the principal was. And cutting a long story short, six months after settlement, an irate woman stormed into her office, abusing her for selling the property. And it turned out that the 88-year-old grandmother was in fact the 35-year-old girlfriend who was living overseas for 12 months. So that was sort of where I was thinking in terms of VOI, can you stop at the attorney or the company director? Do you need to go further? Do you need to do or some type of VOI perhaps on the principal as well? Or is I that would. overgoing? No, I would if you could. And even some basic searches referable to age, that can assist. You can go back to the lawyer who drafted the power of attorney who himself or herself would have got identification documentation mm -hmm. and ask if you could see that material. It goes back to what we said before about completely eliminating risk. Uh, no, there are practitioners, conveyances and lawyers who are the subject of some fairly sophisticated frauds. A case that was before the Supreme Court where a son was forging his parents' signatures on various documents and selling the parents' properties, but had arranged, and this just does my heading when I think about it, he'd actually found two elderly people who looked like his parents to act as imposters. Now, there must have been a fee involved in them performing that particular activity. And so the lawyer was then sued for not checking that the people sitting in front of her were in fact the parents. But they produced identification, so the son had stolen driver's licence and things, and they did look reasonably familiar. But it's a bit like looking at your own driver's licence photo without glasses or your hair has changed or your hair's fallen out or whatever the case may be. So you're not going to have an exact match. But in that case, the judge said that she'd acted reasonably. She'd followed those VOI guidelines, and it was her routine practice to do so. So although she struggled years after the event to remember the precise circumstance of the conference, uh, and this is again a point that I was making before, because she had always followed her usual practice of insisting on seeing original identification documentation, having a look at the photograph, in this case it was a driver's licence, then checking that with the imposters. In, in effect, the judge said, look, we're not saying that in the discharge of your duty, you have to be like a police detective. You've only got to act reasonably. And she, and she did act reasonably in, in that 
circumstance. Somebody, she was cross-examined about, well, this person had a certain hair colour in the photo, but the people in front of you had a different hair colour and that type of thing. So it would have been very traumatic for that practitioner to be subjected to that type of cross-examination. But we're only obliged to act reasonably. We can be and, and, and are, unfortunately, the subject of well-orchestrated frauds. Um, it's just a question of sticking to those guidelines, those VOI identification checks, even for people that you've acted for for a number of years. Sometimes current-day clients that you've, that you've acted for for some time might say, listen, we've been doing, oh, you've been my lawyer for 20 years. You know who I am. You know who my wife is. Why have we got to go through this? I think, again, you've just got to put your serious face on and say, well, identity fraud is a big thing. You want this transaction to be legitimate, so do I. I'm a professional and, and we have to go through this process. Yes, I know we didn't do it 20 years ago, but life has changed since then. And the LRS audits are a wonderful excuse. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, one other thing you mentioned about um, checking agency is in relation to company directors. Mm. So you can be approached by a company director and you can do a VOI check on that particular company director. Is that sufficient? Yes, provided that person has in fact been duly authorised by the company to act on this transaction. Now, you could ask for a minute of director's meeting that authorises entering into a particular transaction. You've got your VOI documentation in relation to that particular director. You could also ask for the contact details of other directors. You could do an ASIC search and find out who the other directors are and who the company secretary is. You can then communicate with the company secretary. Now, all of that may well offend the director who's the principal contact. You know, why are you doing all this going behind my back? I'm not going behind your back. I want to make sure that this transaction is official because in that circumstance, although a particular director will be your source of contact, your duty is to the company. And you've got to always remember that. There was one case that I was involved in where, again, the, the company was the, was the client. The company was acquiring a piece of commercial property. Funding wasn't sufficient. So the director who had been the, the lawyer's contact source said, look, I'll throw in my own money via my own corporate vehicle. So he threw in his own private funds. So then the lawyer, instead of advising the company, was basically advising this director because he became a personal investor. So the nature of the beast changed. But with all due respect to that lawyer, he lost sight of the fact that his duty was to the company. And what that director got was, was favourable security. So there's a conflict between the director and the company. And the lawyer kind of acting, again, with two masters, one of them saying, well, you should be getting priority security for, for the company. And the director saying, no, no, I want priority security for me. So by continuing to act for those two entities, suffered a claim. But so lost track. So the, the authorisation was fine to start with, but you've just got to make sure that you maintain that line of communication and that that person remains your instructor in the correct capacity and that, ha that, that capacity hasn't drifted away. Right. Another example is husband and wife. Husband, wife, selling property. Wife gives authorisation to lawyer or conveyancer to deal with the matter as per the husband. That's a bit of a sexist mm -hmm. way of putting it. Could be the other way around, of course. Yeah. <laughs> So unbeknownst to lawyer, wife and husband then go through divorce proceedings, right? So at the time of settlement, husband then says to lawyer, all money to go into my account. Lawyer thinks, oh, well, they've, they've signed an authority, that's, that's fine. But of course, then, then the wife come march, comes marching in saying, where's my 50%? So you need to keep track. Now, that's a, little bit, that's a little bit harsh on the lawyer because the lawyer did not know that they were about to go through a divorce process. So the, the way in which you're instructed can change in the course of a transaction. Yeah. So it would be prudent then to check 
with your clients immediately before the settlement, before proceeding, just to double check the instructions? You should. You should. You definitely. Has there been any change in these arrangements? And dispersal of funds is a much bigger issue than do we get a pest report? So just say you're given 10 instructions during the course of a transaction. Should we get a pest report? Should we get a building report? Should we get a survey report? All these kind of things. They are things that if you get incorrect instructions, they're not massive. But I always think in terms of dispersal of proceeds, even if you've got an authority from the husband, I would say, thank you, but I still want to talk to your wife because this is the big thing. This is not just do we get a pest report. This is where do the monies go? And red flag issue, if they're all going into the account of one as opposed to the other. If they maintain a joint account and the money's going into a joint account, okay, the red flag can come down a little bit. But if one of them says, no, no, I want to put it all into my account and none going into the other account, I think that's a red flag issue. So in my view, you should be asking, I I would say to the husband, I just want to clarify, I'm not suggesting that you're giving me false information or that you're doing anything untoward, but I'm the professional here, I need to be careful. I want to ask your wife if she agrees with that. Just assume you just assume you're the husband and the husband says, No, no, no way. I don't want you contacting her at all. You'd think to yourself, hang on, that's a red flag. Whereas if it's completely legitimate, you'd say, By all means, here's her phone number, by all means contact her or send her an email or whatever. So it's interesting when you ask the client, would you mind stepping outside that a little bit and they resist, that's a bit of a red flag issue. I have to say that something like that happened to me at one time. Settlement itself was fine, and I had very clear instructions on the proceeds, and both husband and wife agreed that this is, you know, pay out the bank and put the money into this particular account. And I, after settlement, had written to the real estate agent to say, can you please put the monies into this account in accordance with those instructions? Now, somehow the agent didn't see that letter or didn't it was I think I sent it by fax and they either didn't get the fax or someone else had put the fax in the wrong spot or whatever but the agent rang for instructions on where do I put the deposit I wasn't in the office at the time one of the other guys picked up the file couldn't said he couldn't see any instructions which actually wasn't true because I kept very good file notes if he had gone and looked a few pages down he would have found it But he said he couldn't find anything, so he rang the first number on the phone list, which was the husband, and he said, oh, just put it into this account, which happened to be the husband's account. And then, you know, two days later, I'm getting a call from the wife saying, where's my share of the deposit? And I'm going... Well, I sent a fax to the agent and then, you know, it comes out that somebody else has picked up the file, had a conversation, not left the file note, not told me about it. And sure enough, all the money's gone into the husband's account. And then the wife tells me, but we're in the middle of getting a divorce. And I sort of look at her and I say, first, I've heard of it, you know, and I think they sorted it out. I think they sorted it out actually in the divorce proceedings. Even so, you know, I hear stories like that and I think, oh, I had a narrow escape. I think the thing that happens is, and those listening to this who doing conveyancing will know what it's like, where when you're doing three or four settlements in the course of a day, Mm. they're busy, stressful days. There's a lot of phone calls. You sometimes don't have time to confirm things by email, which of course you should do. And so it can be a little bit fast and furious. But in that example... I would always ask the agent to confirm receipt of the facsimile. I know faxes are a bit of a thing of the past now, but (laughs) but confirm receipt of the facsimile. And if you don't, and then diarise, 
I sent, sent fax at 12 o'clock, haven't heard anything by 1 o'clock, ring. But that's all very well for me to say that, but I know in a, in a settlement environment, it, it, all, it all happens very quickly. Somebody rings up, doesn't matter who it is, the husband, the wife, the selling agent who want their commission, whoever happens to ring up. So they're putting pressure on and they want an answer. So somebody else in the, in the office, whether it's a, if it's a law firm, a supervising partner or another lawyer or someone, then grabs the file and gives an answer that they think is the right answer by their quick look at the file. That's a big risk management issue because they're not handling the file. What they're doing is they're just responding to someone over the phone mm. who says, urgent, 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 I'm going to stay on the phone until you give me the answer. Mm. And again, um, estate agents can be pretty Very bad pushy. when it comes to that kind of thing. Mm. They, they can be pretty pushy. And it's difficult because they may well refer a lot of work to your organisation, so you don't want to annoy them. But you have to, and I've said this a couple of times, you have to put your professional's hat on and say, I'm sorry, I don't have an answer to that question at the moment. It's important that we get an answer and we are not going to proceed further until I get an answer. Now, that annoys everybody, but it's good risk management. You satisfy yourself as to, as to what your instructions are rather than giving in to the, the panicked phone call, and it happens quite a lot. And it's also important, I think, for the more senior conveyances when they employ more junior conveyances to, to make sure that they're told the same thing. Don't get bullied into doing things. At the end of the day, especially when it comes to dispersal of sale proceeds or, or where the deposit goes, that's, that's a lesser sum of money, obviously, but particularly in relation to dispersal of sale proceeds, that's probably the biggest thing in this whole transaction and you need to get that right. And you can't make an assumption. Good risk management basically will be no other person will look at this file. So I will handle it. My supervising person will handle it or if I'm the supervisor, I will handle it. But I don't want to have a situation where in the office, if somebody's unavailable, somebody else will just grab a file because that's, that's where they're, they're going to make a mistake because they won't see the email or they won't have had the conversation that took place 10 minutes ago. You mentioned earlier that you shouldn't try to give advice in areas beyond your expertise. I know, for example, that I always used to get the question from people, is this a good report, you know, for a pest report or a building report, et cetera. And the fact that I may have seen a lot of reports suddenly seemed to make me an expert in, you know, pest problems and building structural problems. It's very tempting to give it an, to answer those questions, but you shouldn't, should you? No, you shouldn't. And they, they, want, they want confirmation from you about something that you can't give. In other words, have you seen the building report? Does it look okay? Should I proceed? Have you seen the pest report? Does it look okay? Should I proceed? What I say to people is I would always recommend to a purchaser of a freestanding residential house that they get a building report and a pest report. And if, if they ask for details as to who they might use, I would give them lists. But I would then say, do not send the reports to me. If you have any concerns about the content of the reports, speak to the author of the report. Attend the property with the person while they do the inspection, but don't send the report to me. The reason is, if they send the report to you, they will invariably ask the question that you've just, that you've just articulated, and you're not authorised to give an answer, because unless you've got building and engineering qualifications or pest qualifications, if something in a report says, well, this is a structural timber and it's been partially eroded by termites, but I think that it's got a load-bearing capacity of blah, 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 blah. That's all gobbledygook to me. I don't know the answer to that question. So it's dangerous for you to start getting into the territory of advising clients about whether they should proceed based upon pest input reports. Strata reports are a slightly different category because there are certain legal issues about, about levies and things that you need to satisfy yourself about. But 
if a client nevertheless emails a report to you and then rings up and asks the question, I would say, you've emailed that report to me, I will not read it, and I therefore can't answer your question. I'm not trying to be rude, I'm a conveyancer. I'm here to do the legal conveyance of your property. The quality of the property, the street that it's in, the colour of the paint, I can't comment on any of those things because they're not, they're not legal or conveyancing issues. So you need to satisfy yourself about that. But there have been many claims against conveyances and property lawyers in the past where they have given advice about something that's contained in a pest and building report. And of course, you can guess where, where it's headed, that they then find out there's a termite problem and so they then sue the lawyer. So you've got to distance yourself from that. It does sound a little bit rude, especially if you're dealing with clients who've bought and sold properties over the last 20, 30 years, where probably back then their lawyer or their conveyancer did give advice about pest and building reports. But I think as long as you explain that you have no qualification to discuss those reports, and if they've got any concerns, they should deal with it. The only instruction you need is, I have received a building report or I've received a pest report and I'm instructing you to proceed. Great, that's all I need to know. Now, Strata Report's a little bit different. A lawyer in, um, in the North Sydney area acting on the purchase of a residential apartment, obtained a strata report. Strata report was quite lengthy, quite detailed, probably about two or three inches thick, not three inches, probably two inches thick. And it included all of the meetings of the body corporate for a number of years. And what the lawyer did was look at the levies issue, are the levies adequate? Didn't read the balance of the report. If you'd read the balance of the report, you would have seen that there was unusual items of expenditure on balustrading for years you probably would have been able to join the dots to realise that there was a concrete cancer problem in the building and that it was impacting on the balustrading. But because they didn't read every single line, and bearing in mind they're only charging a couple of thousand dollars to do the conveyance, so just the time involved in reading that report would be hours and hours and hours. But the argument against the lawyer was, well, if you'd read it and you had it on your file, so if you'd read it, you would have been able to advise me of a concrete cancer problem and I wouldn't have proceeded. So you were negligent in not reading the report and advising you as to the content of the report. So if you get a strata report like that, by all means, look at the adequacy of the levies and give advice on that, but then say in fairly clear language in writing that you have not read the balance of the report and that the client should read the report and satisfy himself or herself as to whether they wish to proceed. Because some of the people who prepare those reports throw everything into them. They think that they're doing a great job by giving you a report that's, that's massive. And they're co- in effect, they're covering their backside by giving you everything. That what happens there is they're shifting the risk onto you. That if there's something in that material that you should advise on and you don't advise on it, then you carry the baby. So you've got to then say to the client, no, I'm only advising you about the issue of levies. I'm not advising you as to the balance of the report. Because if it's, if it's on your file, a judge will deem that you have read it. So don't just say over the phone, yeah, I've got the strata report. The levies are fine. I haven't read the balance of it. Confirm that in writing. That's the best risk management for that issue. Thank you for listening to this AIC NSW Conveyancing Conversation. Thanks to Peter Moran and Colin Biggers and Paisley Lawyers. Your responses, ideas and suggestions can be sent to events at aicnsw.com.au. This podcast is a production of Pulley & Co. I'm Julian Pulvermacher and I look forward to your company next time. This podcast is a guide only. 
Nothing in this podcast is intended to be legal advice and should not be taken as legal advice. Should you require any further information on any aspect of the podcast, you should refer to AICNSW or a licensed conveyancer.